and welcome back to Real Clear with Dr. Klein, the crossroads of politics and psychology. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Today I am joined by Professor John Mills. He is a Canadian philosopher, psychoanalyst, and retired clinical psychologist. He is an honorary professor, Department of Psychosocial and Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex in the UK. He is also a faculty in the postgraduate programs in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy at the Gordon Derner School of Psychology at Adelphi University and a faculty and supervising analyst at the New School of Existential Psychoanalysis here in the U.S., as well as an emeritus professor of psychology and analysis at the Adler Graduate School of Professional Psychology in Toronto, Canada. He has taught for over 20 years and is the recipient of numerous awards for his scholarship, the author and editor of several books, many books, over 30 books, and a new one that we'll be talking about. Dr. Mills is an internationally recognized scholar, teacher, and cultural critic, award-winning author, and he maintains an active writing schedule and lectures widely worldwide. And I've known him for a little while now as we've corresponded about various topics in our field and beyond. Dr. Mills, John, thanks for coming on Real Clear. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me so much. My pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Can you tell us about your new book and uh, what prompted you to write it and what it's basically about? Yes, well, um, it's called The End of the World, Civilization and Its Fate. And um, what it's about is um, my concerns about the future of humanity uh, based upon uh, the troubling times that we've you know, been experiencing. And we've seen slowly develop over the last couple of decades, um, particularly the ecological crisis, uh, the concern over overpopulation and food and water scarcity, the uh, anathema of evil and the proliferation of violence and aggression and war, uh, you know, throughout the globe, um, the concerns about uh, economic disparities and uh, social implosions, uh, the, the, the nuclear threat, um, the concern over um, uh, AI uh, proliferations, uh, and you just about name it. The book is really quite uh, broad and dealing with the existential crises that we, uh, you know, are facing today. In terms of what prompted me to write it, I mean, it um, is something that's been incubating for for over 20 years, actually. Uh, and so I finally um, was able to uh, finish the project during the pandemic. And um, this is actually my first uh, general interest trade book. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, it reaches a, you know, a, a wider audience than my typical scholarly 
our academic uh, writings do. So uh, a book with uh, obviously a narrow range of topics, <laughs> I say that ironically, and uh, very far reaching, as you say. Um, one of the things that I noticed in your uh, description of the book uh, in, in the um, publisher's notes is that you, you focus on passive bystander phenomena. Can you say a bit about that, John? Well, I'm a little bit embarrassed about this because it, it does seem to be like a very simple thesis. And, and it's what I, I coined the global bystander effect, where um, basically humanity is uh, acting in a way that it it's remaining unconscious to these um, uh, you know perilous times, and one of them is the the planetary crisis and and the um, you know the threat to uh, uh, sustainability as a species. So um, it's as if we are as humanity just watching uh, the world destroy itself, and so hence there seems to be some kind of passive, even apathetic. Uh, bystander uh, syndrome that's taking place on a on a mass scale, um, meaning that we 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 see what's happening. We see the world is burning up. Let's say this summer, uh, or it's flooding, or uh, polar ice caps are melting, sea level rise, and you name it. Um, the environment is, uh, you know definitely under threat and and yet we kind of watch and do nothing to intervene now i'm making of course generalizations here but um the fact is is that we have very sound um unambiguous empirical evidence and yet even like as we speak uh with the um you know, with the COP meeting in, in Dubai, which nothing will come of it, um, we, um, you know, can just anticipate that things are going to get worse and worse if we don't do something to change our uh, fossil fuel consumptions. So um, I kind of uh, you think of it metaphorically as we're witnessing the crime and we're unwilling to intervene because... Uh, we don't want to get our hands dirty, uh, or we engage in a number of different psychological defenses, such as disavow, uh, denial, dissociation, or you know other things, rationalization. Yeah. But it, it's a it's too big a problem for one person to fix. So um, it really will require uh, you know intervention on a global level that um, engages the greater social collectives that can actually do something about it. John, uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is, well, I'm going to assume that there are a fair number of people uh, viewing and listening who are not as clear on the climate data as you are, uh, and I won't pretend to have reviewed it in any kind of sufficient detail at all. I don't want to be a dilettante on this topic. Um, so I won't address the empirical aspect of the data. Um, 
what I can say is that there are a few things going on that befuddle me around the globe in response to uh, the calls to do something about fossil fuel usage. Uh, one of them is in Germany, they shut down almost all of their nuclear plants, which are the quickest alternative to fossil fuel burning that we have available. Um, in California, we have only one nuclear plant left in El Diablo Canyon. And last summer, there was a push, or two summers ago, to close down the one remaining nuclear plant. In California as well, we are now going to destroy seven of our hydroelectric dams on the Klamath River. Uh, and we have not built a new dam in over 40 years, despite the population booming to over 40 million people in the Golden State. I see these. Uh, and by the way, uh, Germany is now importing oil from Russia to account for their calamitous collapse of their fossil f or of their nuclear energy plants. That seems to me to be evidence of something, maybe civilizational suicide, but other things. Uh, can you bring your mind to bear on those befuddling problems? Well, like you said, um, I'm not an expert in, you know, climate science or the earth sciences. Um, from, from my research, uh, it seems like the nuclear option is one of the best. And um, it's just that people are afraid of that type of energy. Um, so it, it is a bit, um, as you would say, befuddling why it's become, a, a, you know, a dirty form of energy when it, it many arguments are uh convincing that it's the cleanest and or purest and it's the least um polluting so uh there has to be a number of things you know fear of change um fear of, of what might happen particularly if you start conjuring up the paranoid position that um um, you know, a, a terrorist, uh, you know, plane hijack uh, with a, uh, you know, a bomb on, 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 the, on the nose of the plane might go right into a nuclear power plant. Um, but, and of course, um, the old power plants weren't even designed uh, thinking about um, our contemporary times of terror. So if they were, they, they would have all been put underground. Um, I'm actually, you know, live very close to one here. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, a big, it's a big conundrum. Um, we also see the capitalist incentives to continue as, you know, things are um, status quo because it's profitable and, and people don't like disruptions and changes. Um, but there has to be some modifications over time um, of, of shifting um, to different forms of renewables. If you would like to listen to ad-free episodes and have access to daily and weekly releases, essays, and other membership perks, and you also want to help in the production of this program, go to realclearpodcast.com and click subscribe. There are a lot of places in this world where you can put your money, and so I thank you for considering membership to realclearpodcast.com.
Yes. Um, so I'm trying to drive at something called maybe our collective psyche. And that's where you shine, of course, with the uh, corpus of work that you've done on uh, the intersection between um, psychoanalysis, psychology, and philosophy. And there are some who might call those first two domains as applied philosophy. Um, so why have we become so unpragmatic in your view? Well, these are big causal questions that I won't pretend to uh, have resolved. Um, but I, um, you know, I suggest that, uh, uh, you know, that things are overdetermined. Uh, there will be many different motivations for uh, why people act the way they do, some of which are based upon um, basic human desire, self-interest, uh, greed, uh, fear, um, anxiety, uh, a number of internal conflicts that uh, mobilize people's defenses and rationalize certain ways of behaving. Um, others are, you know, bombarded by, I believe, uh, traumatizing times um, in, in our society. And so having having an onslaught of, uh, of various types of external or social forces that impact on who they are. So um, I'm not sure what kind of angle you might be suggesting I go down um, because it's broad. It's very quite a broad topic. Well, uh, what what social forces? What is happening in society right now that is making us less able to be effective at marshalling our cognitive energies towards solving emergent and actual problems in the world? What's going on? I think we are a cluster B nation at this point, and, and Western civilization is largely cluster B. And by that, I mean borderline narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial. I think they're all part of the same neighborhood. They're not discrete personality disorders. And I, I, I wonder if you see that and if you have any thoughts on it. Well, I, I agree with you, Lucas, that... Um, it seems like we are encountering a crisis, uh, uh, particularly in the youth, um, but not not confined simply to to younger people and younger generations. Um, so, on one level, um, you know, what why is it uh, that people can become so polarizing, so divisive, um, so destructive, so envious, uh, so um immediately verbally uh or even physically aggressive or hostile about any kind of social issue that's happening um how is it that people think in such black and white terms you know basic splitting mechanism that this is right this is wrong this is all good this is all bad when there seems to be a lack of a reflective function there's a lack of an integration of the complexity of um, any social issues that seem to have imploded, whether it be, um, you know, issues around uh, racial divisions, uh, identity politics, um, this social justice uh, 
you know, what are you going to call it these days? Uh, what used to be social justice uh, was people that were very conscious, conscientiously concerned about, uh, you know, certain inequalities in in the social fabric of their societies and culture. Now it is um, a illiberal form of uh, authoritarianism that's imp imported and, and, and imposed on you. Uh, and particularly um, what we're seeing in college campuses, what we're seeing in our professions, uh, whether it be um, medicine, healthcare, law, we're seeing uh, people jumping on this bandwagon of anti-racism and DEI and, and everything's about the oppressed and the oppressor, the colonized, the colonizer, and we need to engage in a big social movement of decolonizing everything, whatever that nonsense implies. Um, and you're right. I mean, people have become very uncivil. Like you can't even have a discussion without uh, it leading to some type of um, uh, moral proselytizing um, or this pathological self-righteousness to, to the degree that we, you know, we can look at it in terms of a, um, uh, you know, a, a large group regression um, to some type of narcissistic infantilism. I mean, mm -hmm. and with that type of, you know, babyish, I mean, you might as well wear a diaper and stand up and say this is right <laughs> or wrong, right? I mean, right, uh, right. So it, it's problematic. So why is it happening now? I, I'm sure that you have many thoughts on that too. Yes. Uh, as you're saying this, what comes to mind for me is my greatest concern is that people no longer feel any kind of onus to present evidence outside of their own emotional convictions for the credibility of their argument. We seem to have a generation of people who now believe that their emotional perturbations are themselves grounds for an argument. And they, it, that leaves us purely in the realm of the tribal, right? By that I mean uh, whoever uh, is angry enough, uh, upset enough, and so forth, that those are the tools of an argument. Only those aren't. Those have no place in Western discourse at all. Uh, really, your capacity to be offended is something you should be on guard against. It is not something that you should hold as internally laudatory. And yet we have a group of people. I mean, the, you mentioned the younger people. Um, I'm very concerned about them, their well-being, as well as their effect on society. They seem to truly believe that whatever their internal state is, that it um, should not be countervailed by anything contradictory in the world around them. And so if they feel a certain way, you're to address them with your language a certain way. If they want to identify as a dolphin, then you're to call them a dolphin. I mean, I mean, this is this is territory that no no individual, let alone society, can function properly in. And I'm just I'm so confused and trying to piece it together perpetually as to how we've arrived at this space. So I, I wonder if you have any ideas as to 
What has happened in recent human civilization that has led us to this space where people are not concerned uh, rightfully with problems of the external world that do need to be fixed and, and addressed, whether that's geomilitary conflict, um, nuclear arms races, uh, um, whether that is the climate issue that the both sides are warring against on and so forth, how people have become so transfixed on problems that aren't problems and avoidant of actually tackling and discussing things that are emergent in the real world. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you put it really well. I mean, that, that somehow the notion of reason and logic and um, prudence and pragmatism and thoughtfulness and critical thinking capacities have been eroded or eclipsed for this um, uh, emotional centric way of uh, you know being in the world, and as if as if my internal experience and subjectivity is all that matters, right? And that I and I have the right to project that. In, out into the world and everyone else to just simply accept it as for what it is. Don't, you're not allowed to disagree. If you do, you're uh, an oppressor or you're racist or you're a whatever, a capitalist. Um, as if that's a bad thing. As if it's all a bad thing. Um, so, so you're highlighting the very thing um, that philosophers loathe that we we have to have a civil capacity to have disagreements to have formal dialogue to provide arguments and evidence and that way we can engage one another but when you have a one-sided view that the other party is harming me or hurting me or i don't feel safe <laughs> the new right uh, the new one, uh, the new defense, safe, um, yeah. then you can't really have an argument. You can't have a discussion. You can't have a dialogue or, or even rational communication. Um, so what does that mean? That means um, we're going to uh, have stalemates. We're going to have um, perpetual conflict with one another. And, you know, going back to, you know, Greek, Greek thinking um, that these are just uh, ad hominem uh, informal fallacies of logic, of appeal to emotion, um, as if that is the standard of which all things should be judged. And it, it really leads to a radical um, relativism if, if we were to go down that route and to allow it. And so um, this is why, um, you know, rhetoric and, uh, and learning how to, to argue, learning how to think critically, learning how to have civil debates, and learning how to um, avoid sophistry. I was uh, just thinking about that. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's... Uh, it, it's in some, you know, some places it's just hilarious just to watch, let's say, in the media or it, what's going on in the university campuses, um, how somebody could just try to cancel somebody because they don't want to hear their point of view. Um, 
and they've been quite successful at doing so, uh, which is even more surprising that you can manipulate the, through identity politics, um, administration uh, to take uh, dracon draconian stances around um, people's behavior and, and actions. But at the same time, we're seeing a frightening um, uh, phenomenon of people who have a very um, simple way of thinking about um, right and wrong. And there's no, it's as if there's no, you know, area, gray areas, there's no complexities that are being considered, there's no contexts. How is it, for instance, when, um, you know, graduate students and students at any of the big Ivy Leagues, well, let's say Harvard, can start applauding and cheering uh, for um, Hamas's slaughter of innocent um, Israelis mm -hmm. and, and delight in this and, and, and somehow twist it, twist the fact that Hamas is, yeah. a, you know, is a terrorist group into some freedom fighters and the new counter-resistance and the liberators when that is simply delusional. Right. And, and John, um, uh, following on that, not to interrupt you, but following on that, mm -hmm. what I have noticed in the aftermath of 2000 or October 7th is that when I talk with people in society about what happened to Israel, to the Jews in Israel, the largest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, is that people predictably line up on one uh, side or the other, on one predictable series of statements if they identify as a right of center they support israel if they identify as left of center with exception overwhelmingly they say things like well do you think that the genocide of babies is correct um well do you think that um that, you know uh, israel should have uh, oppressed uh, uh, palestine for so many years and 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 they go on and on and on with these with these catchphrases. Um, so I I want to broaden this out for a second. I'm not saying like right right of center is correct on all things and left of center isn't. That that's quite obviously not true and falsifiable. Uh, for instance, we have a growing number of people on the right wing side of American culture who believe that Michelle Obama is a man. No joke. There's a not small amount of people in the right wing in MAGA land who believe that Michelle Obama is a man. Um, this is, I mean, you want to talk about delusion. You want to talk about social media presenting the illusion of credibility for arguments. That could be a sort of AI version of sophistry. Yeah. And, I mean, it's yeah. everywhere. And so maybe that, that problem that is so wide and pervasive simply touches important topic areas like the Israel Hamas Israel Palestine issue. Um, we're not tethered to examining uh, evidence anymore, are we? I mean, this follows along our the central premise of our discussion here. We're not tethered. We're, we, people don't feel a, a an onus. They don't feel a requirement to be tethered to anything called external evidence anymore they just they think well 
the narrative is, um, and I'm not sure they even think this. They just, they almost emote. They're a, they're an echo channel for what their collective chatterbox is. They, you hear this from MSNBC. Okay, you're against Israel, and then you say the things that you hear uh, talking heads from that program say. And on the other side, okay, you 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 echo channel uh, what you hear from Fox, and, and that's it. And, and you've got your marching orders. There's no more need to think about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's mystifying in some ways. Um, you you know, like people have become very lazy in terms of cognitively, and uh, it it may be due to this, you know, digital zombification that's happening with this, you know, with, with um, technology uh, that people are just, you know, glued to their screen and and they're not reading serious um, in journalism. They're just taking little sound bites um, that are based on misinformation, disinformation, a distortion of reality and taking it as fact and not thinking about it critically. Um, and the other, you know, the, how the internet and you know, the computer has become, um, uh, social media ha has really become the new uh, uh, existential threat to, uh, to humanity um, because um, it leads to this kind of techno nihilism that Mm -hmm. You can you can anonymously attack people. I mean, right. the level level of uh, hatred spewed uh, at at some target. Uh, uh, you know, and, and and you can be anonymous about it. I mean, it's like people have a need to find enemies. They have a need to hate. They have a need to destroy. And it's it's certainly coming out uh, more and more as you know technologies advance. So it's worrisome. Um, and then when you don't have the face-to-face -face interaction, where you have um, you're, you're seeing that you're with another human being who's just mm -hmm. like you, a, su a subject. You know, it's got feelings, <laughs> um, a personality that you can. You know, usually, usually you you can control yourself when you're around uh -huh. others. Yeah, um, you can reflect that this should not be. You know, we shouldn't treat people like like objects of hate. Um, but those taboos are becoming eroded. Uh, people are uh, becoming more and more hostile, violent, and in everywhere. I'm hearing it from my colleagues who uh, teach in the university to employers, uh, to people that you encounter uh, randomly. Um, and so, I mean, just you know, given that we're just talking about, you know, Hamas-Israel war, um, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism is very troubling to me. And um, uh, it's like people just are waiting to come out of the woodwork. And, uh, and this is all, I mean, when, when like what was it? A four hundred percent increase in anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, uh, uh, you know, behavior and activity since October seven. That the 
the ADL had uh, had advertised recently from their research. I mean, it's astonishing. And you don't have to look very far. There was a rally in Sydney where they were chanting gas the Jews. <clears throat> there have been uh, thousands of people parading through the streets of London, screaming that they're going to uh, rape Jewish daughters and so forth in England. I mean, this is wow. this is unprecedented uh, since since Holocaust, really. And yes. it's oddly taken to be acceptable on college campuses and apparently in town and city squares there is a boy this is a groundswell moment i would say but I'm, I'm not so sure that it's going to resolve anything so much as make our differences that much more stark maybe we're just realizing that there are some there are dividing lines being formed around individuals um that there are groups being formed and we're what we're just going to realize is Given where society is going, we can't live together. Well, I hope that's not the case. Um, you know, given that the U.S. historically, U.K. and Canada have been founded based on multiculturalism, um, it it's sad to see that we, um, you know, can't live together. Um, I don't see that so much in Canada. Um, uh, there's a, even though there are, of course, pockets of division everywhere, um, uh, there's a much more, um, um, you know, historically, uh, your tolerance for difference, if not acceptance. And um, so I feel fortunate in that way. I have not experienced or witnessed uh, what I'm seeing on tv in the states let's say or in the uk um but it doesn't mean that people uh you know certain hate groups are coming out um but based upon our social democracy here um i think there's a general respect for the other um but uh, i'm curious from your point of view what kind of what do you fantasize about the future of the u.s it's not looking good right now um i've been saying for many years that the u.s is currently balkanizing and we're seeing that in the data that reflects people fleeing to either red states or blue states or blue um, geographic regions called cities and the country is witnessing a uh, a major separation um the separation seems now to be not so much red state, blue state, uh, so much as city, non-city. And um, that was accelerated by the crime fiascos following George Floyd and the, the way we dismantled our police departments. And for anyone saying, well, no, we didn't. We didn't really reduce the, uh, the uh, payroll for it. Uh, you don't have to. All you have to do is treat your police badly and they retire in record numbers and they drop out and they don't re-enroll. And that's what's happened. 60% reduction in our precincts across the United States. The U.S. is largely unpoliced right now relative to the past. And what that has done is it has caused people to flee the cities and go live elsewhere. So we have our first, well, not our first, but our most recent urban-rural divide, which I see as extremely deleterious for this country on a number of grounds. One is you have to have a communal hub 
cities serve a vital function for the meeting space and mixing place of any society. And so since this process has started to unfold and we have this um, uh, separation forming, we no longer have a mixing space, an actual physical mixing space for people and the minds that live within the person. Now, the only mixing space left is social media, which, as you say, is not in 3D, not in human D. And so we don't have a humanizing of the other. Because we have this separation from urban to rural, hence no more mixing space really in the way that we used to, and hence that we're, I mean, given that we're also now only mixing in this primitive tribalized way as accelerated by that aforementioned problem, we are probably teetering on the brink of actual balkanization in this country. And I think that it's going to, it's not clear how that's going to work out, but um, given the way that people are um, dehumanizing each other, the way that we are less and less able to even speak to each other. I have people, friends on both the left and the right who say, I don't talk anymore to anyone who is not on my side. I mean, I haven't heard that in my life, really. I have not heard that except in the past few years. This is not going well. Um, I have no idea how to solve it, really, except for each person to, to do something miraculous, which is talk with somebody else, be honest, um, address data and evidence where you can. In fact, John, that's where you and I um, met up, actually, right? We're both, uh, in some ways, waging the good fight of thinking about what's true in the world. Um, you know, that's not your only aim of philosophy, but you, you do focus a bit on metaphysics, I'd say, in your applied uh, manner of living. And yet we have a society, and, and let's gear this a bit you know, toward our profession, um, because it reflects a lot about our society. We have a, a profession and a society who have now begun praising what they call testimonial epistemology. Mm -hmm. and, and you and I have been, um, I'd say, fighting against that in very similar ways in our own profession, psychoanalysis. Um, testimonial epistemology, meaning you can just be angry and upset about something or reflect your own experience, and that is not to be questioned. So yeah, it's, I don't it's see like, this going well. By the way, that that's Trump's epistemology. The people who, who uh, trumpet this, you know, uh, should recognize that's Trump's epistemology, which is uh, he is a postmodernist. He uses language and, uh, and personal emphasis to highlight what he wants to be true. And if there is evidence that contra contradicts what he is aiming for, then he finds a way to, to, to go around that. I mean, the leftists in this country are ironically Trumpian. Um, you know, in, a, in an exquisite irony. And so, um, I don't know, John, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, um, I think you've, you're nicely highlighting the extreme uh, spectrum, and and yet the two converge in this notion of um, uh, more of an illiberal authoritarian perspective that they take. Mm -hmm. So it's instead of like you were talking about earlier, 
that let me listen to your side, your your position, your argument, uh, as well as your experience. Let me try to understand your reality from your you know, your shoes. Um, versus, um, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to have anything to do with you because you stand for that. Well, you know, uh, you know, a uh, educated person is going to be more tolerant of differences, um, whether it be whether it be in in the realm of politics, um, society, religion, um, you know, wh whatever you name it. You're going to you you have to be open. Any any truly intellectual person has to be open to other points of view, and to shut them down shows. Uh, a very rigid, uh, you know, closed off mentality. But if we're seeing that on both sides of the spectrum at the extremes, um, one has to wonder what what's motivating that, um, where somebody's uh, personal experience is therefore, um, as you put it, um, their epistemological uh, truism uh, based upon their testimony, based upon their confession, whatever it may be. Um, and it cannot be questioned. Mm -hmm. and so what, what's motivating that? Well, I would say there's a great deal of internal conflict that hasn't been resolved, that one freely can just project it onto some, you know, whipping boy out there and, and, and make, and devalue the other or dehumanize the other as an object of hate, um, rather than looking at complexities, looking at the lacuna of your own um, arguments and, and the myopia you might have because you didn't consider other points of view, because you're emotionally uh, wed to you know, your own convictions uh, to the degree that you're willing to deny reality uh, or deny um, uh, empirical facts, um, let alone twist twist it to suit your own fact. Now, in The End of the World, your book, The End of the World, Civilization and Its Fate, correct me if I'm wrong, but you think this is going to end in world war. Yeah, I, I do uh, think that we're going to engage, have a, a third world war or a global war at some point, um, especially given how people's aggressions just continue to go unchecked. And, and when you have psychopathic leaders that are more or less running the world, it, it doesn't bode well for um, how the outcome is going to be. And of course, it's very difficult to predict. Um, and I, I don't claim to um, have cornered the market on, on that. But when you accumulate all the different types of uh, existential risks that are happening, that the likelihood of either um, intentional uh, war um, or through terror or through error miscalculations with AI um, or, uh, you know, other types of, you know, nuclear rhetoric and, and, and such, um, that it really compounds the risk.
And um, it's a worrying time. Uh, let's hope I'm wrong. Let's hope that um, there's a certain types uh, of, you know, international and geopolitical diplomacy that can um, intervene and save uh, save us from our uh, irrational moments. But I'm, uh, as a, if I'm a betting man, uh, I don't think uh, it's going to work out well. Any prognostications as to how soon? Well, um, not not anything I'd want to go on record for. Not like um, uh, uh, Lord Martin Rees, who who uh, wagered that by 2020 there would be either a large um, uh, a large uh, event that would kill a million people at least through some kind of bio terror or bio error um, scenario, um, but with the proliferation of the uh, nuclear um, modernization process, rather than a dismantling of the nuclear arms, um, that's happening in, in all the major countries, uh, right. US, Russia, China, you know. Um, you've got the Iran question, and if um, the Middle East is, is a hotbed, uh, for this uh, flourishing. Um, so, and there's an interesting, there's a, an interesting uh, argument. It's called um, the doomsday argument. And um, it, it speculates that given that we live in a time where we are the most people that have ever existed in the timeline of the human race is right now, eight billion people um and that if we were to assume that we just randomly existed uh on on the on the human time uh, frame then we are probably closer to doom uh than we would be at any other time in history so this has uh, raised some in interesting um, philosophical debates um, uh, in the literature um, that we can't just calculate through Bayes' theorem, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, but but all the other existential risks that are comp compound this, uh, you know, kind of bring a doomsday scenario uh, into into eyes uh, into minds view. And yet we're over here uh, squabbling about microaggressions. Yeah. Is, you know, <laughs> when you use the word micro, you're acknowledging it's not a very big deal. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, we're over here. Uh, our profession, we have colleagues writing things like um, uh, whiteness as a parasitic condition. Right? Our uh, exactly. colleague, you know, I mean... Gosh, we're um, perhaps lost in, well, I, this is something I, I, I'm just thinking now, John. What if we're, what if we have regressed so much and inexplicably, perhaps, to an infantile state, and that problem loads on our inability to actually believe that we can solve real major issues? 
And as a result, like infants, we deny the presence of those real problems and instead commiserate on our internal fixations, our masturbatory problems of self-gratification and frustration with others. What if that's the issue? That is, it's really two issues affecting each other. We've become infants, largely, and we can talk about that, but first identify that we become infantile, and you see this because we become largely cluster B, and cluster B is largely infantile. Um, needs of the self reign paramount across the world over and above anything else. We become infantile and cluster B, and hence ineffectual, and so we have to deny the problems of the real world because we know we can't solve them as we are. Yeah, and, and want to be coddled and suck off the tit at the same time. Right. I mean, it's people, you know, have to grow up. Uh, and it seems like any type of shortcut is is the way to go. Um, I mean, it takes a great deal of work uh, and labor to, uh, you know, to educate oneself, to stay educated, to to be, um, you know, keep abreast of, of world events. I mean, the hours spent a day just, be, you know, having to to read and study and and and, and constantly, you know, be current is a great deal of time takes me a great deal of time put it that way um let alone people that don't even read i mean they get their news off of tiktok you know they get so, a meme right yeah, this um, person's bad today and this person's praiseworthy today that's all you got to know um but um as you as you were talking um i i think two things may if I can speculate, may be operative here. Uh, given the younger generation has grown up, um, you know, in a in a device, literally. Uh, whereas, you know, we didn't grow up with the internet. I mean, this was all a new phenomenon. Um, uh, so, I my my speculation is is that we have, on one level. A, a whole society full of attachment disordered people. And because of the attachment disorders um, or deficits, that it leads to a flourishing of, of the cluster B personality uh, disorders, right. uh, taking different vectors and valences, as you put it, because I, I agree with you, I think they all converge uh whereas the typology of personality clusters um, um are just one one vector um of a style so whether it be the the psychopathic style whether it be the narcissistic whether it be the the you know the histrionic uh hysterical presentation um uh, the schizoid I mean, it's really, a, I think, a, a matter of um, degree how these defenses are enacted, but we see them spewing out everywhere. And so that, I think on one level, we have attachment-related issues that the new 
um, generations grew up with and are then bringing into um, current society. Like you can't even have real relationships with people, you know, intimacy. I mean, everything's about, uh, you know, tick, uh, what is it called? The Tinder, you know, hook up for a booty call is what we call uh, a relationship, you know, or have texting somebody sitting next to one another and they can't even have a real conversation. Um, the other thing is I think that people have all these developmental traumas too. Um, and that could be, of course, social that's imposed on them. And, and the t between attachment issues and, tra and trauma in life, people um, don't develop the um, psychological and cognitive, cognitive maturity that we uh, would expect under di different types of circumstances. And if I might add to that, um... Those people who have arrived at cluster B by way of the developmental effects as well as traumas, I agree, as you say, um, often, not always, but often, um, they are the most likely to use social media in a malignant fashion. They're the most likely to discharge aggression more so on others than people who are not cluster B would feel comfortable with. And hence, they have acquired what would seem like an enormous amount of disproportionate power in our public spaces because they don't have the same kinds of internal constraints that most of us have regarding discharging aggression onto others. And um, they're the people that many uh, reasonable folks are afraid of when they go to post something online or speak publicly and so forth. Um, they're the people who deter honesty and and I, i'd say truth um do you see it that way as well yeah well sure um the issue like what what can you do about it i mean you could have certain types of um uh regulations that are imposed upon social media uh but then um will that really resolve the issue of no. what you said no it won't it it it, it may curtail acting out but it's not going to to resolve the real issue and that is that you know people are uh, they have their own internal conflicts that need to be uh, worked through psychologically uh, so they become more integrated in their personality and less and more reflective but we are also growing uh, people are growing up they're not encouraged to think critically um because it's seen as criticism of them and i remember uh uh in my when i took my phd in philosophy um being ashamed by um, um one of my professors and it was one of the best learning experiences because it really made me realize what is expected of me to be a philosopher. And so it really made me want to improve and it expanded my out, outlook of life and way of, way of being and uh, being in the world, a way of thinking. Um, so instead of uh, you know, everybody feeling aggrieved 
they should look at these as learning experiences so uh, that are part of self-development it's paul it's part of uh, building it's part of education it's be becoming a cultivated person and uh, we have to you know we have to take some some licks along the way and we learn from them and we don't have to act out in destructive fashions the other thing is that, that there should be consequences for what people do and say and and usually that comes down um comes down the pike in a, in a variety of ways like seeing how um just espousing again um uh, a sense of jubilation uh, over ha Hamas actions on uh, October 11 led to massive amounts of funding being uh, blocked uh, to these universities who would, uh, you know, foster these hotbeds of anti-Semitism. Um, to, I believe it was the um, uh, the law student who had had her um, uh, job rescinded from a major a law firm i mean in the real world i mean uh there are consequences if you do these things i used to run a a, a, a mental health uh, corporation and um you know i had 80 uh, employees uh and uh and a, and a whole office staff and um you know, any any type of uh, acting out like that would get you fired in a second, uh, with 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 cause. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Do you think that that kind of uh, sober and judicious administrative reaction is starting to return? And if so, can we say perhaps that we have reached peak woke? Well. <laughs> um, yeah it goes both ways though right so um for instance on one hand we have to uh weigh the liberty of freedom of speech with what's hateful and on the other hand um speech in and of itself should not be considered to be violence that's um a, a postmodern little gibberish uh, right but it, it can be very hurtful and it can incite people to act so when people act certain ways uh with their so-called free speech that that um lead to pernicious consequences for others then there should be consequences that people have to pay in their both personal and professional life um for instance, any of the stuff on the on the social media, I mean, people don't realize when I was hiring people's staff, I'd look at their Facebook, I'd look at their their online presence, and I could immediately see whether I, I would want to hire somebody like this or not because of the values that they uh, express. And um, I think... Uh, people are going to be much more scrutinized by uh, employers in, in, in today's societies. So, Dr. Mills, I'd like to have you on again. Uh, but we're wrapping to a close here at the hour. What can you leave listeners and viewers with 
uh, perhaps related to your forthcoming book, End of the World, Civilization and Its Fate, uh, perhaps just more in general. What can you leave viewers here that might help them consider how to improve the way that they uh, interact with the world of evidence? Well, that's a tall order. Um, I, I think ultimately if I were going to leave with um, a tidbit of hope, I would say we need to learn um, how to be more tolerant and, and have mutual recognition for the other. E even if we don't agree, or even if we don't like uh, certain things about what others are saying or doing, because if we don't have some standpoint of, of mutual recognition, that, that we could not ever improve in, in our societies. Uh, because as you said, they're going to be balkanized in, in, in the firm, um, you know, antithetical camps that will lead to, as you mentioned earlier, more of a regression to tribalism and um, the need to demonize the other for not for no good reason. So I, I hope that people could, meaning people throughout our societies, can learn to um, think about the value of, um, of, of being more virtuous, being, being more open-minded, being more prudent, being more civil, and that that will get people's needs met better than um, needing to, you know, rage war against the other. Mm -hmm. Well stated. Dr. John Mills, philosopher, psychoanalyst, psychologist, and professor, and author of the forthcoming book, End of the World, Civilization and Its Fate. You can find links to that book in the show notes and you can buy it on what date now, doctor? Well, it's uh, up for pre-order now. So uh, you could get a 30% discount. If I have Ooh. to put a pl plug in, I will. <laughs> Good. Roman, Roman and Littlefield is the publisher. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor John Mills. We really appreciate you coming on Real Clear. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for your, your kind hospitality.